Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear about a bill that could make ski resorts more accountable to the public when it comes to safety. Plus, we talk with a gun rights activist about the role gun owners play in preventing mass shootings. To me, the number one role that we play is is community involvement. We'll have more on that. Plus, we learn how legislators are responding to calls for more aggressive gun laws. That and more just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. A bill that state lawmakers are considering this week would require ski resorts to publicly report injury and fatality statistics. Proponents say it would make resorts more accountable for safety. Opponents, on the other hand, say some of this data is already available, and the measure unfairly singles out Colorado's resorts. KUNC investigative reporter Michael DeYuana took a deep dive in 2019 and last year into what the public knows and doesn't know about ski injuries. He's with us now. Hey, Michael. Hello. A hearing on Senate Bill 184 titled Ski Area Safety Plans and Accident Reporting is slated for Thursday. Tell us about it. Yeah, well, as you said in the intro, the bill requires resorts to share statistics. They also have to publish plans showing what kind of measures they're taking to keep skiers safe. Here's Senator Jesse Danielson, a Jefferson County Democrat. She's one of the sponsors. The bill is a fairly straightforward approach to try and find out where there are problem areas that are causing significant safety concerns, and then we can take steps to try to address them down the line. It's a public health issue, it's an accountability issue, and consumers deserve to have this kind of information. So that sounds pretty straightforward. Tell us about the opposition to this bill. Topping the list of opponents is the major trade group for the state's ski industry. That's Colorado Ski Country USA. A representative with the organization sent me a very brief statement by email saying the bill, quote, does nothing to improve skier safety in Colorado. Obviously, Senator Danielson disagrees with that. Uh, Another opponent of the measure is the Denver Metro Area Chamber of Commerce. Kelly Bruff is the chamber's president and CEO. To separate us and require reporting, we think would create this perception that Colorado is uniquely different from other ski areas in terms of risk or accidents. And that's the part that really causes us great concern. Now, Bruff is saying that states with resorts don't require this level of tracking. She's also saying there is some tracking of this kind of data on a national level. So the National Ski Areas Association tracks not only deaths, but also really serious injuries. They track it throughout the nation for all. So there's a real consistency in reporting. And so the concern is that we'd be the only state in the nation of those 37 who now report all these other Uh, you know, what might be accidents. Um, And then I also think, Michael, the perception is these accidents were due to a negligence. 
Okay, so a couple things to talk about. First is the issue of negligence. Yeah, Bruff's point is that injuries at ski resorts can be the fault of the skier and not anything the resort did. Under a state law called the Colorado Ski Safety Act, skiers assume the risks of the slopes, which are defined as inherently dangerous because of the snow and ice, terrain conditions, and even a resort's infrastructure. And so what about statistics from the National Ski Areas Association? If I were going to a resort in Colorado, could I find the specific incidents that happened at that resort? No, that's because the information is very top-line. According to the association, in the most recent full ski season, that's 2019 to 2020, there were 42 fatalities and 29 catastrophic injuries where someone had a life-changing severe injury. So there's no resort or state-specific data? Correct. And this is where the thousands of injuries I found in my investigation for KUNC in 2019 stands in contrast. I dug into a little-known database of hospital incidents that state public health officials purchase every year. It has codes in it for visits associated with skiing or snowboarding injuries. In 2017, the most recent information available at the time of my story, there were 5,660 ER visits and 597 hospital discharges. Most of those involved falls and collisions. Wow, and those sound pretty dangerous. Yes, but perhaps not known at the time to be catastrophic, which are the kind of injuries the National Ski Areas Association is looking at. Does the state data you found say which resorts the injuries happened at? No, unfortunately not. But it does show that it is possible to get data on ski injuries. Um, and there is there is one database that links a subset of ski injuries to resorts, those involving chairlifts. Resorts are required to report ski lift injuries to a state board. I had to file a Colorado Open Records Act request to get that data. And what I found was that in a roughly five-year span, ending in 2018, there were 74 injuries where people fell or slipped from chairlifts. In a majority of those cases, the resorts concluded the cause of the injury was, quote, skier error. So that the skiers made the mistake. About a third of those injuries were children, and that included a three-year-old. Senator Danielson said people shouldn't have to fight like I did to get this kind of information about what's going on at resorts. We have to acknowledge that there are injuries, there are deaths, and there's very little that the public knows about any of this in Colorado ski resorts. Over the years, many other reporters and safety groups have dug into these issues in their own way. And late last year, a group called Safe Slopes Colorado looked into the state data and found about 55 skiers and snowboarders arrive in high country emergency rooms every day. Dan Gregory is a retired physician with a national group, the Snow Sports Safety Foundation, which helped with that data. Gregory has fought for more than a decade to get a bill like the one being considered here passed in other states, notably California, but so far he's failed. This would make Colorado first in the country in terms of safety information uh, without, without question. No, no other state is doing anything like this. So it's been a long process 
just to get to the point of introducing a bill. Yes, in 2019, after my stories ran, there was a ski safety working group that Gregory participated in and others, including a group of parents in Boulder who were alarmed when a girl fell from a ski lift in Eldora and uh, the ski industry. They were all there with state officials. And after months of talks, the group ended with a fizzle, some saying they didn't even get to bring up their issues. So for advocates of more data, the bill is a big deal. But I pushed back on Gregory, asking if the bill is placing too much responsibility on resorts, given that skiers accept the inherent risks of the sport. He says no. There are inherent risks to skiing, but they've uh, managed to purvey the perception that because something is inherent, it's not preventable. So he's saying that with public data and safety plans, resorts would just be more likely to address safety issues. Yes. The idea is that managers of resorts would know that each year injury and fatality data will become public. Supporters of the bill believe those managers would become much more inclined to pay very close attention to where accidents happen, why they happened, and what can be done to engineer safer conditions so they don't happen again. And if managers don't appear to be doing a good job of it, the numbers will let consumers know they might want to take their business elsewhere. Michael DeYuana is KUNC's investigative reporter. He'll be keeping an eye on that bill in the legislature this week. Thanks, Michael. You're welcome. State lawmakers from Boulder are vowing to pursue aggressive gun laws in response to last month's shooting that left 10 people dead. But their calls for an assault weapons ban and waiting periods for gun purchases are stirring up a lot of emotions. KUNC's Scott Franz has more on the reaction to the possible political response. Paige McSaveny was one of the many who heard the gunshots and ran from the King Supers parking lot when the suspect opened fire. The 18-year-old Boulder resident has since returned to the scene to pay her respects. Mass shootings like this is not a normal function of society and it shouldn't be happening. And whatever efforts we have already implemented have not been working. And so we need to do something else. And she says that should include banning assault weapons. Because people don't need them. It's nobody's business what I choose to own with the money that I earn. But almost 400 miles away in the town of Cortez, Angie Smith sees things differently. Just because you don't understand how something works or you have fear, um, that's not a reason to take something away from law-abiding people. The former corrections officer lives in Montezuma County, and voters there overwhelmingly elected a gun rights advocate to Congress last year. Does there need to be changes? Absolutely but it needs to be in the upholding of laws that we already have. It needs to be in harsher sentencing for criminals that break those laws to begin with. But other West Slope residents are not quite sure what lawmakers should do. In Crested Butte, high school history teacher Tally Nichols says many of her students have guns. And I have full respect for that. You know, their family and their choices and their way of life. And for a lot of them, going hunting and going going out with their family and shooting is a, is a great fun, mentally healthy thing to do for them. It keeps them strong and healthy and active. So there's two sides to that. Even with differing opinions, she thinks lawmakers should look into new gun regulations. There's probably a happy medium and we need to listen to each other more 
to find a solution. So far, that does not appear to be happening at the state capitol. It's unfortunate that I can't get people to actually talk to me about this issue. That's Tom Sullivan, a Democrat leading the charge on gun control bills. His son Alex was killed in the 2012 Aurora theater shooting. You spend all your time talking at me and pointing at me. He was recently raising his voice at his Republican colleagues because they were not backing a bill requiring gun owners to report lost or stolen firearms. It was being debated right before the shooting in Boulder. I believe yes votes give the people of this state a sense of hope. We'll give them the thought process that we are listening, that we are prepared to do something. It took a full year after Aurora for Democrats to ban high-capacity magazines, and two of them lost their seats over the effort. And now some gun-owning Democrats, like Darren Kennedy, are skeptical about lawmakers taking more action, like banning assault weapons. I don't support such a proposal, mostly because a lot of the weapons that they call assault weapons are actually weapons that could be used for hunting. Kennedy is a painting contractor who lives in Mount Crested Butte. And I think they look dangerous, but whether or not they're actually any more dangerous than other firearms is debatable. Further south in San Miguel County, rancher Rowdy Rowdabush is also unconvinced. There are just so many guns out there that how you would possibly uh, begin to round them up, I believe, is beyond any government agency that I've seen in action. With mixed opinions and previous laws failing to prevent mass shootings, Democrats are treading carefully. Two days after the attack, Senate Majority Leader Steve Finberg, who is from Boulder, sounded very interested in adopting legislation, and quickly. We don't treat this as just yet another event that was inevitable. We owe that to these individuals. What, what I will say is this is also a time to act. But when I asked him about it recently, he was more guarded and says any action would still be weeks away. We are still having... Um, conversations with uh, policy um, experts, with um, our colleagues uh, as a caucus, et cetera, with the governor's office, um, and um, we're still working through it. And Governor Jared Polis has not indicated what policies he would support. Meanwhile, back in Boulder, Paige McSaveny says she's starting to ask more questions about what can and should be done and how she can help. What can I do to push you know, reform and changes and legislation changes. Who can I talk to? Who can I email? Who can I call? What groups of people do I need to meet with? Um, And I think there's a lot of people and young adults in the community that are also on this exact same path as me right now. I'm Scott Franz at the State Capitol. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. In the aftermath of every mass shooting, there are people who call for tighter gun control laws and even outright bans on certain types of guns. 
there are also people who say strict gun policy infringes on Second Amendment rights and punishes responsible gun owners for the violent actions of one mass murderer. One of these people is Leslie Hollywood. She's the executive director of Rally for Our Rights, a nonpartisan organization that advocates for the right to keep and bear arms. Colorado Edition producer Tess Novotny talked with Hollywood about the role gun owners should take in preventing mass shootings and how strict gun regulation impacts responsible owners. She began by describing how she became passionate about Second Amendment rights. So I became passionate about this cause in particular through my own experiences, actually, as a domestic violence survivor uh, many, many years ago. And I've long been a political activist. I've, very, I've cared deeply about our constitutional rights for a very long time. And this one kind of became personal to me when I found myself in a situation where I needed to defend myself and I didn't have the tools to do that. I just kind of said, you know, I'm not going to be a victim anymore. And I chose this route for myself. And then in 2018, when the Parkland shooting happened, which was just absolutely tragic to watch, to see thousands, if not millions of people taking to the streets across the country, demanding the gun rights of their neighbors, of their fellow citizens be taken away because of what very, one very evil man in Florida had done was incredibly alarming to me. You are the executive director of a pro-Second Amendment organization called Rally for Our Rights. It's really interesting to me that it's an explicitly nonpartisan organization, because when I think about guns, I guess my mind goes to like hyperpartisan arguments between conservatives and liberals. How does Rally for Our Rights operate in a nonpartisan way? So we focus solely on the right to keep and bear arms, on gun rights. And actually not everybody who's part of our organization are even gun owners. They just support the right. Maybe they will want to in the future, or they just want to make sure that their neighbors or their friends or their family, people in their community continue to have that right. So they will actually come in and get involved in our organization, we stay very, very single issue focused, which is very hard to do these days. It's hard to not bring in the hyper-partisan conversations that happen around really any political issue. So we stick solely to the Second Amendment. And so we want to make sure that we can come together on this issue when we're, when we're advocating, when we're out there talking about legislation, when we're talking about gun control bills and education, because it's not just the right or it's not just Republicans or these people who sit right of center who own guns or who care about the right to self-defense. It, it honestly really crosses the partisan divide. This week, lawmakers passed two different gun-related bills. One requires people to use a trigger lock or store their guns in a safe when they know that a child or someone who is ineligible to possess a firearm could gain access to it. Failing to do so could result in fines or jail time. What do you think about this safe storage bill? Is this an effective gun safety strategy? I think safe storage is an absolutely important piece of a firearm ownership. But safe storage looks different for everyone. If somebody lives alone, they're a bachelor, they don't have any children, they don't have anybody with kids that come over, safe storage is going to look a lot different for them than it looks for somebody who has children in the home or who maybe lives with, you know, somebody who suffers from depression or mental illness and there's more of a need for safe storage. Responsibility is a very com important component of firearm ownership. As far as having a mandatory bill, 
I, you know, it gets frustrating because what really needs to happen is that we need to help people who maybe are lower income, who have chosen to purchase a firearm because maybe they're a victim of domestic violence, maybe they have a stalker, maybe whatever reason it is that they've chosen that. We want to make sure that we're not going to make it more difficult for them to defend themselves by saying, okay, now you must purchase a safe, otherwise you are a criminal. To me, the real solution is to make sure that we can help those people get safe if that's what they need to do. I feel like punitive laws don't work. So I think one of the really important pieces of this is to figure out how we can work within the community to make sure that people have access to what they need. And if they can't afford it, how can we crowdsource to get that to get them what they need? So you're saying that it would be more effective to help gun owners purchase safes and figure out storage than to punish them for not having those things. Let's talk about the other gun bill that just passed the legislature. It requires people to report a lost or stolen firearm within five days of noticing that it's missing. Failing to do so would result in a $25 fine and, in rare cases, jail time. Do you have any concerns about this bill? So this is a really interesting bill. And I, on all of these bills, I've listened to all the testimony, all the debate, and I've testified myself on them down at the Capitol. And the lost and stolen guns ones is actually frustrating to me because the reporting of stolen guns is not an issue. If a, if a gun owner finds their gun has been stolen or has been lost, which really doesn't happen, but if it's been stolen, they do report it immediately for different reasons. One, they want their property back. Two, they don't want it used in the commission of a crime. The big issue is actually recovery. So you can go to the police and you can say my gun's been stolen. It goes into a a database that it's funny because this bill, I think it says it has to be in the database within five days. Currently, they put in the database in in 48 hours. So it actually gives more time, which is kind of interesting. But currently, if you were to report your gun stolen within 48 hours, it goes into a national database of stolen guns. And what happens from there, though, is that nobody does anything until the gun is discovered in the commission of a crime. So we've done nothing to actually prevent the crime. Reporting puts it into a database. And if it's ignored until it's actually used against somebody, it's used to harm someone, what's the point of the law? And then I actually worry that combining it with safe storage, that we may actually have the unintended consequence of gun owners not reporting their guns stolen because they're afraid they're going to get caught up in the safe storage law. So if you don't report your gun stolen, it's a $25 civil infraction. If you get charged with not having your gun safely stored, that's actually a misdemeanor. So if somebody reports their gun stolen and they are going to get charged with a misdemeanor, wouldn't they rather not report their gun stolen and face that potential civil infraction? So that's just kind of unintended consequences I feel like sometimes happens in these bills when we don't talk to gun owners, we don't bring them to the table as stakeholders. I definitely understand your point about making sure gun owners are actually involved in gun-related legislation. I want to switch gears a bit and talk about what happened in Boulder on March 22nd when a gunman killed 10 people at a King Supers grocery store. What role, if any, do you think responsible gun owners should play in preventing mass shootings? To me, the number one role that we play is, is community involvement because gun owners have, have been stigmatized and it's become a thing where they almost stay quiet. They're afraid to seek mental health counseling because they don't know who they're going to end up with. It's just become a very stigmatized thing, which is amazing because there's really so many of them. Um, I always say, if you want to know who a gun owner is, 
probably your neighbors and your coworkers. I mean, people just don't even realize it. It's very important that the gun owner community polices their own. Do we see people who are in trouble? Do we see people who are in crisis? How can we help them? What we can do is we can watch our own families and our own community for people who may be in crisis and make sure that they have access to uh, mental health services. And again, I go back to it's hard as a gun owner to seek out mental health because they really worry that that person may be anti-gun and may see them in this very negative light and not be willing to just let them talk. There's an organization called holdmyguns.org, excellent organization uh, started by uh, gun owners and who have their own tragic stories about suicide. And what holdmyguns.org does is they have actually worked within across the nation. They have developed a database of FFLs, so like gun stores, law enforcement agencies, just different places that are willing to hold my guns. So say I am a mom and I've got a teenager who's kind of angsty and angry and there's some stuff going on and I'm definitely worried about having firearms in my home. Rather than somebody coming and red flagging me and me having to go to court and my guns being confiscated by the police with a search warrant and all the trauma that that kind of stuff takes, a situation like this would allow me to say, okay, my angsty teen, I'm worried about them. I want to get my guns out of my house. So I'm going to go to hold my guns and I'm going to find out who can locally take my guns for me until our crisis has passed and we feel that we're safe to have guns back in the home, which maybe never. Not everyone can have guns in their home and I'll be the first person to tell you that. But I think organizations like that are just critically important within the gun community because when you get outside of it, when you get into that hyper-partisan side and you go to the other side and they look at gun owners as these really negative, awful people who only care about their Second Amendment rights and shall not be infringed, they don't really see what's inside the community itself. And we really have to do a good job of helping each other. And so things like that can be part of that solution. Leslie Hollywood is the executive director of Rally for Our Rights, a nonpartisan organization that advocates for the right to keep and bear arms. Leslie, thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, thank you. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, with all but one of its locations closed, we hear about what's next for local natural grocery store Alfalfas, and we get a broad look at the state of the natural grocery market here in Colorado. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.